Hello and welcome to the Genome Podcast. My name is Misha Angrist from Duke University and Genome Magazine. My guest Julia Sweeney is an actress, comedian, writer, and film director. She was a memorable cast member on Saturday Night Live from 1990 to 1994, and after that she became most well-known for her monologues. Her first one-person show was entitled God Said Ha, and dealt with her brother's and later her own cancer diagnosis and treatment. It played on Broadway and was nominated for a Grammy. Quentin Tarantino produced a film version of the show, which Julia directed, and which I highly recommend. Subsequent monologues chronicled Julia's quest to become a mother and her adoption of a child as a single person, and her loss of faith and embrace of science. In recent years, she's occasionally performed on stage, and she wrote a memoir entitled, If It's Not One Thing, It's Your Mother. Her new show, Older and Wider, debuts at Second City in Chicago on Friday, January 12th. We talked a few months ago about astrology, genetics, cancer, family, and life as a Neanderthal church-going atheist, among other things, at the National Society of Genetic Counselors meeting in Columbus, where Julia delivered the keynote at Genome Magazine's Code Talker Award Ceremonies, where patients honor their genetic counselors. Here's my conversation with Julia Sweeney. So I was Google cramming, oh as, I, as I want to do, and I found this. I'm afraid. It's a whole breakdown of your horoscope. Oh my God. I was oh just God. wondering if you knew what, that that existed. No. On um, astro.com. What does it have as my birthday? Oh, it has my right birthday. Yeah, okay. so you're Libra and you're Libra Ascendant, and I just thought that was kind of funny. Oh my God. Is it just they do celebrities or something? Or yeah. they just pick people out and do their thing? And then all this stuff is so meaningless. This just makes me sad. But it looks, humans... it looks like science, doesn't it? I know it. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is so on my mind recently. This what kind is? of thing. Not astrology, but mm-hmm. just how things... For people who are not going to think deeply about a certain area, and I'm sure this is true for me, but not in that area, because I have thought more deeply about astrology, I guess, as a general science thinking person. But for people who aren't going to think about an area deeply, just the monikers or the appearance of fact is as good as fact. And I've just been really noticing how that pulls the wool over people's eyes. And they feel like, well, you know, smart people have looked into it. Or it wouldn't be so elaborate if it weren't true. Or, and it's actually... You don't even have to do that much for people to think that experts have looked into it and this conclusion is verifiable. That's what I have to say about that. Ugh. <laughs> so what was it like growing up as a Libra? <laughs> I know. It's probably more interesting how people react when they find out certain qualities that they think they have because it's been named by some astrologer and then what effect that has on their behavior. That would be an interesting study. I'm interested why you said yes to this invitation, because I I suspect (laughs) you get many. Um, Well, I stopped doing these. When I did God Said Ha, I started doing lots and lots of cancer organization conventions. Lots. Lots. And it started getting creepy, because I started seeing, like, a lot of them were really great. 
I mean, I remember one of the best weekends of my life was with the oncological nurses convention, like in Arizona, where I love these people so much. They just got, it was like everything I was trying to convey, they got it and it was fun. But then there was increasingly events to raise money for a cancer cause that were really, the more I went to them, like they were, I just questioned them. Not that there wasn't some positive good intent in them, but that they had been corporatized and that they were, I just started seeing through the veneer of these fundraising events. And, and it's not that they were 100% terrible, because they weren't, but they started seeming like they are about 80% terrible, so that, like, not only was there, like, an auction of items that had been outsourced to a company that did auctions of items that probably, that I would find out only gave 10% of the money, and then I was sitting at tables of people saying, well, I bought those diamond earrings, but it's for a good cause, and those people not realizing how little of the money. And then the organization itself was just about awareness and it wasn't about anything else. And it just started to feel creepy. And I felt like I just had to put a stop to it. Like I just couldn't go out and do that anymore. And by that time, my head was in another place. I wasn't thinking about cancer anymore. And I didn't even want to think about it anymore. And I was on to my other interests. Um, at the time, investigating religion for myself or thinking about my philosophy of life and becoming a mother and having a family. So I kind of just said to my speaker's agent, that's it, no cancer-related anything anymore. (laughs) So then they basically never call me for anything, Mm. and I just occasionally do stuff. The reason I accepted this was because, um, first of all, in Chicago, where I now live with my husband and daughter, one of his close friends is a genetic researcher at the University of Chicago, so I talked to her a lot about her work, and I, of course, am really interested in genetics, and I'm interested in how it's exploding. When they called me about this, I thought that was a good excuse that we could do our 23andMe thing, you know, where you get the added health yeah. thing, so we all did that, and that was really interesting, and so I just I just found it interesting, and then... As I got ready for this in the last couple of weeks, I started reading more about about genetic counselors and I read the essays that won and it was really, it's really fascinating. This whole area is so fascinating that we can have this much information and that then we have to deal with knowing this information. It's just a really interesting area. I'm curious, what was your 23andMe experience like? So, um... My husband said, well, because we had actually done the National Geographic one before where you do the inside of your mouth, not the spit. Geographic, yeah. Yeah. And so my husband is Jewish. I'm Irish. You know, Catholic doesn't matter for genetics, but Irish, you know, British Isles, Northern European. And our daughter is Chinese. So we were just exactly what we thought we were. You know, like they sent us a map. We all, there was no surprise. It was just like, she's from China. Michael's from the Middle East, I'm from Northern Europe, that was it. So then he was like, well, why do you want to do it again? And I said, because I want to confirm my suspicion that I'm a Neanderthal. And he said, that's ridiculous. And I go, no, no. And he goes, why would you say that? I go, because I just feel like I'm Neanderthal. Look at my body. (laughs) When you see pictures of Neanderthals that they, you know, know, where they have recreated, that looks like family pictures of my family. He goes, well, you know, everyone's a little Neanderthal. I go, but I'm a lot bit Neanderthal. He goes, oh, this is ridiculous. So we, and then we we just sort of laughed. Okay, so then we sent it off. We got everything back. We poured over everything. 
Michael was just like, he's susceptible to all the Jewish diseases, Tay-Sachs. He could be a carrier, all this stuff. And we're not even reproducing, so it doesn't even matter. But that was interesting. Mulan had only one thing that was a marker for possible late onset Alzheimer's for her. So that was interesting. Mm. Then mine comes up. I'm in the top 2% of all people who've done 23andMe of Neanderthal. I'm, I am Neanderthal. And I'm looking for a counselor who can counsel me on how I need to behave now that I know I'm so Neanderthal. And how I started going around our house. I started going, <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I, so I'm curious, you know, a lot of adoptees and parents of adoptees do these kinds of tests because there is no right. biological link. And I'm wondering, did you have expectations for what you would learn about Mulan's genome or um well th there's two things that I found most interesting about hers one was that she has like one eighth or something um she's mostly I forget what they call it but it's basically Chinese East Asian but she has one part South Asian so like she's somebody came up from Vietnam or Thailand or some of that area of like a great great grandparent or something like that. So that's interesting. And then the other interesting thing for her of the 23andMe database, she has fifth cousins in California that have done the 23andMe. Oh, right. mm -hmm. So that for her who has no connection to any person, and these people are like so far sure. out, but and a lot of East. Eastern Asian people emigrated to California to build the railroads. I'm sure there's like some relatives in there. But anyway, and so that was really interesting to think of that. Yeah. That was cool. Like, we're all, we're all connected. When you were going through the cancer stuff and your brother, and did you look into genetic testing? Was there... No, I felt like, for me, my cervical cancer, I felt like there was just experiential things in my life that put me in a category of possibly getting that that just seemed like it explained it. I didn't feel like it was a genetic marker. And for my brother, well, I have this theory that I guess I that I never looked into or did anything about, which is really terrible for me of me, but there was like these 3 years when my brother rented this really cheap apartment in this really crappy area of East LA that smelled like gas so much I didn't know how. It was like a near a gas thing where they were pumping gas out of the ground, as they are do in California. And I would go there and go, Michael, how can you stand it? And I totally think that there was, and I, but I never did anything about it because I'm not a very good person. Well, I didn't go investigate it. I didn't go see if a lot of people in that neighborhood got cancer. But I felt like lymphoma, I mean, who knows what happened, but I just yeah. felt like it was an environmental thing. And also because he delayed going to the doctor for so long I guess I thought I don't know I don't know what I thought I didn't think it was genetic so I didn't even think about doing sure. anything like that even well, though we also were downwind from Hanford in mm, Spokane so yeah. and a lot of people attribute to you know cancer rates in Spokane which they say are high I'm not actually sure if that's true to the Hanford thing but I I don't know I never did well, so no so I'm bad no, that, I, I don't think that's the take-home lesson. I'm a Neanderthal! <laughs> 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 so.
So this probably falls under the heading of, I've answered this more than a hundred times. That's okay. I'm an actress. I can make it sound like, oh, interesting. Um, la, la, la. <laughs> you know, I watched God Said Ha years ago when it first came out, and, and so I rewatched it recently you in did? anticipation oh of this. It's hilarious. <laughs> Especially when you're channeling your mother. Yeah. It's sort of like, so you share all of these intimate details yeah. about your family. You've pretty much always done that yes. since then. Yes. Was, you know, did that require seeking permission or forgiveness? Oh, yes. Okay, or, now, um, no, I'm a terrible person. This is the answer to this. I did not ask anyone's permission. And partly it was because of how it really happened. I never saw myself as a person who was going to do like confessionally, confessional stand up y kind of comedy. Um, because it's all Kathy Griffin's fault. Because she's mm. the one who took me to this club in LA where she was just trying to learn how to be a stand up. And there's this place called the Uncabaret in West Hollywood. And it was really for stand ups to kind of break out of their joke patter pattern. And so there were certain rules that Bethel Peters, who started it, had, which was it had to be a totally true story. You couldn't make up stuff. It had to be the first time you ever told it. So you couldn't know where the jokes were. You, you were really, this is it, raw. And it was like at late night on a Sunday night when she could get this little club that only could hold 50 people at its max. So it was a very safe place to just go and get up and tell these stories. And so... Kathy encouraged me to go, and so I did, and I got up, and I started telling these stories, and then all this shit started happening to me, so of course that became, but I never thought anything in that room, that to me was like a confessional, like I was really just telling the room, I was talking like I would talk at a dinner party about what had happened to me that week, and not thinking any more of it, and then later, at the end of the horrible year and everything, I was trying to get and I was recovering from my cancer and really hadn't been working. And I was trying to figure out how I could do a showcase to let like casting directors know that I was available and this is what I look like and this is how I am. And so I thought I'll just put together like 45 minutes of this material because Beth's husband had recorded it. I had actually forgotten everything. If he hadn't recorded it, I would never have remembered what I'd said. So he gave me all these tapes of nights that he thought I was particularly on or had a good story. And then I did it at the Groundlings, and everyone, or a big feeling at the end of it with all of these show business people was, forget about getting cast in something, this is what you should be doing, is telling the story. So it was sort of like, you know, I was like the frog in the water. <laughs> it just gets warmer and warmer by the time the it was boiling. Frog. Yes, exactly. By the time I was... You know, it was like, it, I never really had this clear moment where I thought, should I go ask if it's okay? And then, of course, I'm a wimp and didn't want to ask. So then I just thought, well, I'll just do this as a little show in L.A. But then it became very popular. And then I still hadn't even told my parents I was doing the show. Because I thought, this is just a local thing. And then um, it's not like nowadays where it would be, it would probably have been on Netflix. or You know, like you could do stuff and your parents didn't know about it in the old yeah. days. Then it opened in San Francisco, and I still didn't tell them about it. And then the local paper ran a thing saying, Julie Sweeney's doing a hilarious show in San Francisco about her brother. And my parents were like, what? And then I was like, oh, my God. And so they flew to San Francisco, and 
because um, they wanted to see the show. And I took them to a restaurant the afternoon before they came. And I said, okay, I am going to do my show for you right here in this restaurant, slowly, so that you can just react to my face and tell me what you think. And it isn't a shock what I'm going to say on stage. So again, I didn't ask permission. I just said, this is what I'd say. And I started in, and after about 10 minutes, they were so bored that they said, just stop. We're okay. We can handle it. And then, and then they went, and then to my horror, because I do have a lot of issues with my mom, even though I also love her, but like most people, I do have a lot of issues. And I love being able to do the show because I could, it was my outlet, you know, like I could get that affirmation, like I'm not crazy, she is in a lot of things. And also I had softened her, by the way. I had really left out the worst stories. Still, I felt like I did a good ribbing. Um, to my horror, my mother loved the show, thought it was the greatest show ever, and wanted to see the show over and over again. And it was like, no, I'm making fun of you in this show. I'm really, really, like, the the satisfaction yeah. I got from the audience laughing with me at my mom when my mom was included in it, it wasn't as fun. That wasn't as satisfying. <laughs> So there's your long answer to that. And everyone else, of course, Michael was dead. I couldn't ask him. I didn't ask anyone. I feel like now I should have asked them, but I just didn't. Because it just seemed like this organic thing. I feel like now, like, well, for now, this because I'm about to do a new show at Second City. So I'm doing a new one-person show. And, of course, I talk about, but it's not, I'm trying to make it more observational. I'm trying to get away from my family because, and away from the big tragic story because I don't want a tragic story. There hasn't been a tragic story. Right. And, but I was trying to figure out, well, so I'm really kind of going more towards stand-up territory, more towards observational stand-up territory. But still, there's things about my husband and daughter in them. And, um, and they get complete say over whether I get to say that story or not. So with them... I've been honorable. With my family, my birth family, I was not honorable in that way. You talked earlier about doing all of these sort of cancer-related events, and then it gets to be creepy. Do you see yourself now, 20 years hence, as a survivor, as a patient advocate? Do you... No, I really don't, I guess. I just... I'm really just don't think about others. That's really. Um, You're not a joiner. <laughs> I'm not a joiner. No, I'm really not a joiner. I I like the idea of joining, which has gotten me into so much trouble because I will sign up for my daughter and husband constantly are making fun of me for how many things I join, and then have a conniption fit like a month later, going, I can't be in this group. <laughs> um, and it's not because the group's bad, but um, I guess I don't know what I see. I don't yeah. think, I, I guess I see, well, I hate to say survivor. You know, cervical cancer is not so bad. It's really, that's like saying I'm a bad cold survivor. I mean, like. Really? Yeah, I do feel that way. I mean, it is true that if it hadn't been treated, I would have died mm. eventually. Yeah, that's good. I didn't die. But I <laughs> never, you know what? I think it's because it happened while my brother was dying of a horrible cancer that it was embarrassing that my cervical cancer was even had the word cancer in it. It seemed like... It was not worthy. Yeah, it wasn't going to kill me. I got it detected, well, not as early as I could have, but you know, I still had to lose my uterus. But And then the other part, this is the part that I don't understand about myself. 
<laughs> is that I never had any problems with losing my uterus. I really had no moment of sadness about it. I didn't, I do, knew I wanted to be a mom, but I immediately, as soon as I said that, I thought, oh, so I'm going to adopt. Like I didn't have, there was not even one inch to leap to that. So I guess I don't think of it as a survivor. I just think mm. I had a health situation. I got it taken care of. There's a consequence that I couldn't have kids from it. Turned out good. But I imagine <laughs> a lot of people, even today, they've seen God said, ha. Huh, and so they come to you and they bring these expectations of Julia Sweeney's Well, I am compassionate about it. Sure. I mean, actually, that's the one thing I loved about doing the cancer events. Because I really did understand. I had many events where I just was so filled up with, you know, gratitude that I could connect with these people and it seemed to mean something to them that they were connecting to me. I mean, I really did get it. I don't do anything to help anyone. <laughs> But I do feel like I get it, especially the family dynamics part of it. I really get all, like, it isn't just the cancer. It's that every relationship is altered and stressed to the max. And family and family that needs people that need to feel like they've helped you, even though they haven't helped you. So you have to be responsible for letting them feel like they've helped you. Like, all those subtle dynamics that come into play with cancer, I really get it. But that's as far as I go. I just get it. I don't do anything. I'm not an advocate. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about God. Okay. A lot of people, you know, our magazine is full of stories about people dealing with devastating diseases. And a fair number of them develop a very strong and profound faith. Right. In the face of that, I'm wondering if in your case, all of this awfulness had something to do with you going the other way. No, it didn't. I really lost my faith for such a stupid mundane reason, even though I do think I came to the right conclusion. It wasn't... When I had cancer, my brother had cancer. I was religious, but I wasn't more... I didn't become more religious. But, like, I never beseeched God to try. I had this, um, I had this very sometimes more intense, sometimes less intense faith, quote-unquote. My God was like a really loving uncle who really had no control over anything that happened in the world, but was a witness to everything that happened. It was actually a pretty good God as far as gods go. Like, and he was there to listen to you and to say, oh my God, I know you got cancer. That's terrible. Like my idea of God wasn't like, do something about it. <laughs> like, I guess I had this impotent idea of God always that God never could do anything. It was not the <laughs> Old Testament ball buster. No, it was um, 70s um, Jesus hippie that came out of my Catholicism, which was popular at that time. A lot of liberal Jesuits that were taught, teaching me, God is love, he's your friend, he's there to love you, vague things happen for a reason, he's gonna be there to hold your hand through all the terrible things, but he doesn't have any responsibility for any of those things. That was my God. So I felt like when Michael died that he was, you know, that was not in a big way meant to die, but that that was his fate. And I had 
the narcissism of a younger person that of course I would survive, you know, like, you know, like I didn't, we did go to church because my parents were living with me and I, I always loved going to church. I actually, I'm the one who's saying let's go to church. I'm still the one who's saying that. I like going to church. I find it fascinating. And well, now I look at it more clinically, but at the time it was comforting and, but not in a really strong way. So I'm sorry to interrupt. (laughs) You're a church going atheist. Yes, I am. In fact, I had one year in Chicago where every Sunday I went to a different church. That's how I got to know the city. I feel like that's <laughs> got to be like the, such a tiny Venn diagram of... <laughs> I know. I know. It was so fascinating. Oh, my God. And, I, and then I ended up joining a Unitarian church, but then I realized I didn't want to be part of it. That's a whole other story. I, I'm actually still on their roster. And I love these. I love the Unitarians. I think everyone should be a Unitarian. Because, you know, you can be an atheist and be a Unitarian. Right. So, like, and so they're kind of like everything I think that's good about a church, or some might say is bad about a church. But, you know, like the community and the outreach and the community service and the music. And um, they seem to uniformly have the ugliest churches. They just go out of their way to have, like, how industrial and bad linoleum floor can we make it but um but other than that um i'm like why I, is I'm that like, i always want to say you guys have you gone into other churches they actually try to make it look nice i mean like <laughs> like to go from all these beautiful little catholic churches and especially in chicago old saint pat's downtown like these just jewel boxes that are so you can't help but feel be put in a mind space when you walk in of the sublime and eternity and beauty and poetry and the unitarians my god it's like a community church you know it's like not even a church it's like the neighborhood community meeting at the community center with a bunch of metal chairs oh god anyway um but i like their philosophy okay but when i left so god so when i had the cancer it had nothing to do with god really it was just about the same as it was i i never thought even while Michael and I both had cancer, people would say, do you just say, why me? And I go, no, I never thought that. I always thought, why not me? Why not me? And you didn't, <laughs> you didn't double down on prayer? No. So this is the embarrassing truth. It wasn't until later when I had a terrible breakup, a really, really painful breakup with a guy I was really in love with, and he dumped me, and it was really my first just... I mean, of course, I'd had upsets before, but this was really, like, I was down for the count. Part of it was that I really wanted to be a mom, and I didn't imagine myself being a mom on my own, and so I was at that age, around 35, where it was really, I didn't want to be single again, looking for someone to quickly adopt a kid with them. You know, I knew that it meant I had to either adopt on my own or not be a mom, so there's all these other implications. Okay, so... And I was in love with this guy, like really in love. And I was really depressed. I mean, like, you know, really depressed. And really, I mean, I wouldn't say, I hate to use the word depressed because I know people who are really clinically depressed. I like to say really sad for a reason. Really sad for nine months with for a reason. Like where I could just barely, I felt wounded, physically wounded. I was crying a lot I was really in a state like just life crisis time like honestly nothing's happened since then like that like I was I mean and it's kind of embarrassing because it's like people have died but 
I guess it's because I thought it was a failure on my part. Like, when my brother had cancer, that was, he got cancer. When I got cancer, I got cancer. That's just rolling of the dice. But to me, not being able to put together a long-term relationship with somebody who wanted to raise a kid with me just felt like a massive personal failure that bigger than anything I had ever experienced. So a lot of sadness. I couldn't sleep, and then that became a terrible feedback loop of not sleeping and not being able to do stuff, and I was really not leaving the house, and it was terrible and terrible. And then I had this religious experience where I felt like I woke up in the night. I felt like now I think it was like a probably a partial you know, it was a right temporal lobe something, mm. you know, seizure possibly. And because I was really, really in a bad way. And I had this feeling that, like, I saw lights. I felt like it was God. I didn't feel like somebody said something to me, but I felt like I knew in my heart it was all going to be okay. And I felt like this thing go through my body of just calmness, like I like I suddenly had a main line of Valium, you know, like it, I, like it felt overwhelming. It's hard to describe this experience, which of course, from my culture, I interpreted as a religious thing with God saying, "You're gonna be okay when you just stop crying." <laughs> it was kind of it, and then that was great. I did calm down. I felt like that was a definite shift. That was like a, several months into it, four or five months into this terrible almost year but then I kept thinking why did that happen what was that and just my just curiosity like what happened there how real was that like am I a Jesus freak now or what am I really religious so I thought well I guess I am religious well my tradition is Catholicism always liked it always had good experiences so I'll just rejoin the Catholic Church and I'll sign up for a Bible study class so then I signed up for a Bible study class, and then I actually read the Bible. And that was really the end. That was it a was deal like, so then, so then I read the Bible and was like, what? This is what? And then I started you know, reading about how the Bible was put together and appreciating, of course, the Bible, all the wonderful things that are in the Bible. And then, of course, there's all the creepy, weird stuff that's in the Bible. And then, and it's so obviously just a historical hodgepodge document that had enormous cultural influence, but was not divine to me that seemed obvious and then I just one book led to another and before I knew it I was reading you know Michael Shermer and Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and all those people and I was like I'm convinced and then I and I learned more about what could have been happening in my brain and then it, and who knows what happened? I mean, I don't even know if that's a dream or what. And I can't go test it. And it never happened again. But I don't think it was a god. I think I was in a huge crisis, emotional crisis state. And my brain did whatever it could to calm me down. I mean, I think it was just doing what it could do to help me. So that's what it was. So, so, so when I saw your question, I thought, oh, God, I know I should say it's like, when I got cancer... I realized there was no God. No, <laughs> it was a guy broke up with me. <laughs> it's embarrassing, my reason. You've been kind of an out and vocal atheist. Yes. Have you gotten a lot of grief for it? I think not to my face. I feel like, well, first of all, my people wanting me to do any kind of cancer-related stuff was like, I mean, I was saying no already, but they did not want me if I was... Like, there were many things that my agent would call and say. The 
Cancer Society of North Dakota wants you, but you cannot say anything about you being an atheist. They're very worried about you mm. being an atheist. And that's, and I had never really thought before, oh yeah, I guess in the cancer community, that's a big God-loving community. Although, you would think it would be a not God-loving community, but it is, which I also understand because you're, it's a useful it's a useful construct, I have to say. There's a lot of wonderful things that religion, while I think they're delusional, are effective and useful, and especially in a crisis. So I get it. But I don't know. That was just a whole other thing, right? Like, what do you think I'm going to do? Like, get up and say, there is no God, people. <laughs> like, I'm not going to say that. I well, th What I hate is that where people, they don't judge me themselves, but they're so worried other people are going to judge me. You know what I mean? Like they wouldn't, they don't want me around cancer mm. people because they're afraid the cancer people might be upset. I actually don't think they would be upset. I think they'd say, well, I mean, if you really believe in God, who cares if, if there's somebody who doesn't believe in God, wouldn't you just say, well, too bad for you. You don't understand. I mean, <laughs> what do they think yeah. is going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> so how would you feel if I asked you to tell the story of meeting your husband again? <laughs> God. I mean, how many times have you told that story? I'm way too many. And in fact, last time I was like, oh God, because you know, every time you tell a story, Are you're you a little bit... Are you embellishing it? No, I'm not embellishing <laughs> it. In fact, my, my husband laughs at now when I tell the story, now that we're like in this long-term marriage, like over 10 years, it doesn't, I don't imbue it with all of the like Fireworks. flowers and you know, it's like, yeah, we <laughs> seem like we were good enough for each other. <laughs> that you know fairy tale quality that I imbued it with when I was first telling the story well let's see how I can tell this story because now when people say how'd you meet your husband I go his brother introduced us <laughs> and I try and then they go oh how'd you know his brother and I go I just knew his brother <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to get into it um so Michael's brother Joel Went to see God said, no, letting go of God. He'd seen God said in San Francisco. That's where he lived then. And then he saw letting go of God. And Michael, um, who was single and had never been married, I'd been married and divorced. Um, and Michael lived in Chicago, had said something about how he could never be with anyone unless they were not religious. This is actually, I used to say that they didn't believe in God. He said, that's not true. I didn't say I couldn't be with someone unless they didn't believe in God. What I said is I couldn't be with somebody who was religious, which I actually think is different. Yeah. For him, he didn't feel like he could be. So you can imagine how excited he was when I joined the Unitarian Church. Anyway, um, <laughs> that was the one thing I didn't. I hope you got someone who didn't believe in God. But now I'm joining the church. Um, and so he, Joel wrote me this fan letter. And it was around the time that I had an excerpt of the show on This American Life. So I was getting like really hundreds of emails. And one of the emails was Desperately Seeking Sweeney-in-Law was the headline. So, of course, I had to read it. And it said, I am writing to you to propose marriage to you on behalf of my brother, who doesn't know that I'm writing to you, but he's the perfect man for you because he is blah, 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 scientist in Chicago, and our family's crazy, too. And it was just a funny letter. And I read it to my the guys across the hall I was on the Desperate Housewives staff and we all thought it was a funny letter but I didn't write back because I thought if I say good letter he'll say why don't you call my brother and I thought I'm not going to call your brother oh my god anyway 
Then, see, now I'm having to remember the story. Then what happened? Six months later, I was in New York doing the show, and I came out. It's so funny, because all these friend, people are really good friends now that I didn't know. And this woman, later I know her as Rhonda, comes up to me and says, my friend wrote you a letter. And actually, she didn't even look for me. We were coming out of the, I was going in the bathroom, and she was coming out after my show. And she said, my friend wrote you a letter proposing marriage on behalf of his brother. And I said, oh, right, that was such a funny letter. And she's like, I just want to say, he's a good guy. You should really write him. And I was like, maybe I will. And she's like, you should. And she said, I knew those boys in high school, and they're hilarious. And I said, oh, maybe I will. I'm going to. I'm going to. But I didn't. And then six months later after that, it was about a year later, I was doing the show again in L.A., and I came out, and Joel was there. And he said, I wrote you a letter about a year ago proposing marriage on behalf of my brother. And I said, oh, right, right. I, I was thinking I'd write him. And at the, tr the truth was, at that moment, I was sort of flirting with this other guy that was bad news. And so I was like, good, who's this new guy? He said, I said, well, I think I will write him. And he said, no, don't write him because he's an asshole. And I said, what? And he said, well, as I was coming down here, I called him. I said that I was coming to your show. He got really upset when he found out about the letter because it, his home phone number was on it and his cell phone number and a picture of him and he didn't even know it was being sent and it was unfair. And now he won't, he screamed at me and he, we're not speaking and even my mother thinks I'm crazy who came to see the show and I wanted her to meet you too but she said, you know, she's going to think we're stalkers or something. I won't meet her and so then I said, okay, I have to meet the mother. So I went off, I met Norma who immediately I liked very much. And she was funny. She was like, you shouldn't be talking to us. She said, but I would make a very good mother-in-law. <laughs> so we laughed about that. And then I really wrote Michael the first time to just say, don't be so mad at your brother. It's not, I know this is embarrassing, but it's really not a big deal. I'm not putting it out there. Just talk to your brother. And something like, Michael always remembers this part. I said, and if you're as charming as your brother, who was very charming when we met, I guess I should say hello. And then three days later, Michael wrote back and said, um, I am so humiliated. I, when I found out about that letter and had been sent to you, I just hoped you had this efficient assistant who would delete a crazy letter like that and that you never would have laid eyes on it. So sorry to take up your time. That was really it. It was not an invitation to more conversation. <laughs> And then I said something like, well, what kind of science do you do? And he was remembering this recently because I'd said something about, there was, there was something happening in Switzerland at the time where these scientists were like, we're going to do this experiment and either we're going to learn about like the Higgs boson something yeah. or we're going to create a black hole that the entire earth is going to be sucked into. And so I made some joke about that, like, well, maybe we're all getting sucked into a black hole next week. Or we're going to know more about this thing or something. You thought that was funny. And then and he's just, a biophysicist? Yes. And he has a company that, um, he makes this very high-end camera that uses x-rays to take pictures of protein molecules so you can see the DNA. Mm -hmm. and, and it has the whole software thing. And it's a huge, huge machine. Huge so with the Large Hadron Collider joke, you were sort of right yes. in Yes, oh baby. Right I was... in his wheelhouse. Yeah, we went back and forth, and then finally he came to visit. He's cute, so we got married. <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end. <laughs> then I moved to Chicago. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you.
Thanks so much to Julia Sweeney. Julia's new show, Older and Wider, debuts at Second City in Chicago on Friday, January 12th. For tickets and other information, please visit secondcity.com. And thanks to you for listening to the Genome Podcast. Don't forget to check out our magazine, which comes out quarterly and is available online for absolutely free at genomag.com and by mail. Go to genomag.com and click subscribe at the top of the page for a free Dead Tree subscription. The genomag.com website also has a host of new stories and other cool stuff. So please check it out. Talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.